Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Emma. And we are the Steministas. We educate the public about science and the news. And the ethical implications of new science findings. This week, we wanted to give you a solid background of the cardiovascular system, specifically the heart, blood, and blood vessels to help set up this series. Something we've found with previous episodes is that for the background to be established, well, it takes a lot of time. So hopefully by having this episode just dedicated all to the basics, it'll set us up to explore some interesting topics in the season without having to give you background every time. Before we delve into the history of heart, we wanted to briefly explain heart anatomy, The heart has four chambers, a right and left ventricle and a right and left atria. Different valves lead into these chambers and open or shut depending on where the blood is in the heart. The whole purpose of the heart is to pump blood around the body. Blood gives other body organs nutrients, but more importantly, it provides oxygen to the body. Since blood travels through the body and loses oxygen on its way, when blood is pumped through the heart, it has to pass through the lungs to be oxygenated. Blood also picks up waste products like carbon dioxide, which it can also drop off in the lungs. This is where the chambers come in. Two major veins bring the non-oxygenated blood into the right atrium, where it is then pumped into the right ventricle. The right ventricle then pumps the blood through the lungs so that it can be oxygenated. Then the left atria takes the oxygenated blood and dumps it back into the left ventricle, where it is then pumped to the rest of the body. This can get a little confusing, so it it always helps me to remember two things. One, the atria are chambers that receive blood, and the ventricles are chambers that deliver blood. Two, the right chambers always contain non-oxygenated blood, and the left chambers always contain oxygenated blood. So this can help you to remember the path that blood will travel through the heart. And hopefully this was clear, but in case any of this is confusing, we've also linked a great article with a gif of how this works. That's cool. So it's kind of like the atria receives the gift of blood and the ventricle gives the gift of blood. (laughs) So one really cool thing about this whole process is we kind of mentioned that there's these valves involved and these valves open or close kind of to let blood in or out. And these steps of the valves closing and opening can be heard when the doctor puts a stethoscope up to your heart. And this is why they listen to different areas of your chest to try and hear the different valves closing, because that can help diagnose the issues with the heart. So if you hear an issue with one valve, you can say, okay, we're going to focus more on this tricuspid valve versus the other one. And we've linked to a really cool YouTube video showing where doctors put their stethoscope to hear the various heart sounds in case you're interested in learning more. That's so crazy to me. It's like... uh listening to music with a really talented musician that can point out all the little parts. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. But back to the heart. Valves um, separate the entrance to each chamber and prevent backflow of blood between the chambers. Blood needs to flow in the proper direction, obviously. So a problem in the heart valves is a severe issue. And this can be likened to if you fill your bike tire with air, Um, but there is an issue with the air valve and the air leaks out. So diving into some heart history, the heart and how it worked was actually a puzzle for quite a while. Galen, the Greek physician in 280, held the prevailing theory on how the heart worked and was unchallenged until 1200 AD when the Arab physician Ibn al-Nafis proposed the correct theory and the English physician William Harvey expanded on this idea in 1642. 
Galen thought that the body had to keep producing blood and that blood actually originated in the liver. He thought that the job of the heart was to help clean the blood by pushing blood between the porous membrane um, that was between the left and right heart ventricle and then to the lungs. This is actually pretty interesting because the liver is now known to be responsible for removing toxins. So Galen pretty much had it backwards. Galen also suggested that blood was the most important of the four humors, which are blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. Four humors sounds like an improv troupe. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. So these were basically the astrological charts of the 400 BC plus time period. So Hippocrates was the one to suggest that humans are made up of earth, fire, air, and water. And that's when the Fire Nation was Yes, I was going to say that sounds like Avatar. (laughs) We're Avatar fans, if you can't tell. <laughs> Children of the 90s. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually didn't watch it till last year, so I kind of... Wow, that's okay. ...came onto the scene later Late with that. To the party? Yeah, Steven was like, you must watch Avatar. But have you watched Korra? It was great. Yes, we watched Korra okay, also. Yeah. Also great. Also great, but dark. But but so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I still liked Avatar better, yeah. but Korra was fantastic. So Hippocrates associated the four elements with four body fluids, as I already mentioned, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. But where it gets even more interesting is that Hippocrates paired personality types, age range, temperature, season, and like general personality qualities with these fluids. So if you were feeling melancholy, Hippocrates would say you had an imbalance of black bile, your element was earth, your season was winter, and you were old, cold, and dry. Well... This sounds exactly like Enneagrams. <laughs> I wonder if it'll catch on. Oh, I could see it being a new thing. Definitely. Try and diagnose people based off their humors. <laughs> but getting back to Galen, uh, where did he get this idea that the liver produced blood? In his time, it was pretty taboo and sacrilegious to do any cadaver dissection, so he used animals to understand heart physiology. Once other physicians started dissecting cadavers for science, Galen's theory about a membrane between the two ventricles fell apart. William Harvey, the English physician, suggested that blood flows in a circular system in 1628, based on his experiments on animals. However, another physician rarely gets the credit that he deserves for proving Galen's theory wrong. Ibn al-Nafis was an Arab physician who published a commentary in 1242 that described the circulation of blood around the body and through the heart and lungs. Thanks to al-Nafis and Harvey, physicians and scientists had a lot to work with on understanding the heart. However, there's still a lot of research happening on the heart today. If this shows us anything, it's that people can be researching something for thousands of years and still not understand it. That's science Mm -hmm. research over and over again. Endless quiz. So today we know a lot more about the heart than we used to, thankfully. And every organ in the body is important, but without the heart working properly, nothing else can function. And I think you could argue this for the brain as well. Oh, definitely. A lot of research about the heart has been performed because heart disease is the leading cause of death in the U.S. We'll have a whole episode dedicated to heart disease at the end of the season. The heart's a muscle, specifically a cardiac muscle. Every day, it beats, on average, 100,000 times. And cardiac muscle is pretty unique because when the heart pumps, all the muscle cells contract together at the same exact time. Certain cells in the heart, called contractile cells, coordinate the contraction across the heart. 
Other cells in the heart are called pacemaker cells, and they set the pace of contractions. When people talk about getting a pacemaker put in, it's because the pacemaker cells in their heart are not working as they should be. Candace, who will be on as a guest in in a couple episodes, will share more with us about pacemaker cells because she worked with them extensively in her PhD. What our hearts do each and every day is amazing, especially when you think about how much we put our hearts through. We exercise, which raises our heart rate, and we sleep, which lowers our heart rate. And we stress out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All the time. My resting heart rate dropped significantly after I defended my dissertation. Oh, I don't doubt it. I, I remember when like everyone went home with COVID and everything, yeah. I saw mine drop like maybe five yeah. beats per minute. It was it was uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, data is kind of scary sometimes. But it also gives you knowledge. So I saw that and was like, okay, I need a better <laughs> work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> data is power. Yes, that's true. Sadly, COVID is affecting people's hearts. Many who get COVID have issues in heart function and lose some of the heart muscle. Heart is unique like the brain, and then it does not regenerate new cells as easily as other tissues like skin or liver. So this is why people who have heart attacks lose heart function, because once those cells die from not getting blood, there's nothing to replace them. Now that we've learned about the basics of the heart, which is the engine of the cardiovascular system, we'll introduce blood vessels and blood. We mentioned already that a major function of the cardiovascular system is to transport oxygen and nutrients to tissues throughout the body. So if you think of the cardiovascular system like a delivery system, um, just like the postal service or Amazon, then the blood vessels are the roads and bridges, and the blood cells are the actual delivery trucks. So I have this weird thing where when I read the name of something like blood vessel, I'm just like, oh, it's a blood vessel. I don't think about what it actually means Mm. because like vessel means it's carrying something. So it's like actually moving the blood. I had this realization the other day with overalls. (laughs) And I was like, oh, overalls, they go overall. I, I didn't, I have this happen all the time with words. It's really, so really funny. sad. But I thought about that with blood vessels. I'm like, oh, it's a vessel for blood. Wow. I think, you know, you just so. like kind of take it for granted when it's your first language, English. But I wonder if you like think about that more if English isn't your first language. I don't know. Because it's not question. as first nature okay. to you. I feel like I notice yeah. things like that in Spanish. But it's because I'm like thinking so carefully what everything means i don't know Mm -hmm. yeah i think when i was learning danish i might have felt the same way with some words too it's like you you see the pun almost in the word (laughs) and maybe someone else might not see it but just like the roads in our towns and cities have certain traffic laws and follow specific traffic patterns the blood in our body obeys certain patterns as it makes its path through the body There's two major roadways or paths that vessels take, the pulmonary circuit and the systemic circuit. The pulmonary circuit leads from the right side of the heart through the lungs to oxygenate blood, and the systemic circuit leads from the left side of the heart to the tissues of the body in order to deliver both oxygen and nutrients. So what exactly makes up these roadways? As we discussed, blood vessels. (laughs) There are five types of blood vessels. Arteries, arterioles, capillaries, venules, and veins. Arteries and arterioles carry blood away from the heart, and venules and veins carry blood back towards the heart. Capillaries are the smallest type of blood vessel, and they connect the arterioles to the venules. 
The size of the vessels decreases from arteries to arterioles to capillaries as they move away from the heart and increases from capillaries to venules to veins as they move back towards the heart. And the speed of the blood flow also decreases as vessel size decreases, which allows for delivery of nutrients and picking up of waste products between capillaries and tissues. While the capillaries access all tissues, very energetically active tissues, such as muscle cells, have more capillaries, similar to the way that large cities are going to have more roads than rural towns. And one example of this is um, like cartilage, for example, has few um, few capillaries, and that's why you don't necessarily like bleed when your cartilage gets pierced. So you may be wondering, what do blood vessels actually consist of? Well, these vessels are made of empty tubes called lumen that are coated with cells called endothelial cells, and this kind of creates a shape that looks like a tunnel. This tunnel wall of endothelial cells is then surrounded by connective tissue and smooth muscle cells, which is different from cardiac muscle that we mentioned earlier. These muscle cells are infiltrated with nerves that instruct the muscle cells to contract and help with blood flow. And arteries contain thick walls of connective tissue and muscle cells, which get thinner as the vessels get smaller in arterioles. Artery walls are much thicker than veins, and veins contain valves that prevent backwards flow of blood away from the heart. So in the legs, veins cannot push blood as well against gravity through contractions, and because of this, they rely on movement of surrounding skeletal muscles and these valves to help them push the blood back towards the heart. Speaking of pushing the blood, this brings up a really key concept when talking about the cardiovascular system, blood pressure. Blood pressure is the force that blood puts on the inner walls of the blood vessels. This pressure will change as the heart beats, peaking as the ventricle contracts and decreasing as it releases. When you get your blood pressure measured at the doctor's office, they give you two numbers. For example, 120 over 60 is a typical reading. The higher number is systolic pressure, or the highest amount of pressure during the cycle of ventricle contraction. The lower number is diastolic pressure. And that's the lowest amount of pressure during that ventricle contraction. Now for some background information about blood, which, as we mentioned earlier, are the delivery trucks of the cardiovascular system. We don't want to go into too much detail about blood since a lot of this information overlaps with the immune system. And that's something that we covered briefly in a past episode uh, when talking about vaccines. And we might cover it more in depth in the future. But anyways, very broadly, most of you know that Blood consists of four different components, plasma, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. Plasma is the liquid part of blood that contains water, sugar, proteins, and salts. White blood cells are also involved in the immune response, as as you've probably heard of. We haven't talked about platelets too much, but they are important for blood clotting during wound healing. And finally, red blood cells are the most relevant for this season. These cells are responsible for carrying oxygen throughout the body, and they contain a special protein called hemoglobin that can pick up oxygen and drop it off where it's needed. Red blood cells are pretty unique cells. As you can probably guess from the name, red blood cells are responsible for giving blood its red color. And this is due to the hemoglobin protein. These cells have a flattened middle giving them a characteristic donut shape, and they also don't have a nucleus or mitochondria. One thing to note, our blood is always red. Your blood vessels may look blue when looking at your wrist, but this is an optical illusion due to the way light bounces off of our skin and based on the depth of your blood vessels in your skin. Your blood cells are constantly being renewed. For instance, your red blood cells survive for about 120 days, so obviously these cells will need to be replaced quite often. 
stem cells residing in the bone marrow can produce new blood cells. It's estimated that adults produce between 1.5 and 2 million new blood cells each second. That is wild. (laughs) Just like want to thank my body when I read things like that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We give it so much crap and put it through so much. And it's like, I'm just trying to keep you alive. Even if I didn't do anything today, think about how many blood cells I I manufactured. Now that we know the basics of blood vessels and blood, let's talk a little bit about the history. Since we already talked about the original ideas about how circulation of blood happens through the vessels, we're going to focus specifically on blood. Unlike the heart and blood vessels, blood is not usually as well hidden under the skin. It's easily visible when you have a nosebleed or get a cut or a scrape, and it was quickly understood that blood is essential for life. Lose too much of it and you won't be sticking around for too long. Perhaps this is why blood has held so much symbolism throughout the ages, being a critical part of many traditions, such as communion for Catholics and rituals of some indigenous groups in the Americas. And of course, it was even the inspiration for famous stories like Dracula, which is a fantastic read if you have not read it. Oh, I know. I, this is reminding me that we're getting into spooky season. We may have to talk more about oh, it'd Dracula. it be such a good book for spooky season. <laughs> Emma mentioned that in the past, the body was believed to contain the four humors, not to be confused with the improv troupe. <laughs> and blood was one of these. So people thought that health issues could be explained by an imbalance in these humors. And while some humors, like phlegm, had an easy route for leaving the body, there was no way to decrease the amount of blood to restore the balance. And this is why folks used to perform bloodletting, a procedure where doctors would make a cut somewhere, like the arm, for instance, and bleed a person for a little while to decrease the amount of blood. People would sometimes use leeches to accomplish this, too. Um, But we now know that this is rarely a helpful strategy if someone is sick. But back in the day, this was a common medical practice. You just go to the doctor and get some leeches put on you. (laughs) Gross. I do not understand or cannot fathom any of that happening. I can't even, like, deal with a cockroach on the ground. Like, I can't imagine a leech. I know it's not a bug like that, but it's, I don't know, it looks bug-like, right? When I think they'd go and, like, pick them up out of ponds, probably not disinfect them, and then stick them on you. Gross. So gross. And people believed that letting blood from specific areas could resolve specific problems. Like bleeding the veins between the eyebrows, they thought that would resolve a headache. I would live with a thousand headaches before you put leeches on my forehead ever. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's a new fashion statement, like have a leech. Mm, No, thank you. Make a little unibrow. But it didn't stop here. People also believed that blood had healing properties, so sometimes they would drink other people's blood as a treatment. At one point, it was believed by some people that drinking the blood of children (laughs) could help you gain back your vitality and youth. Yeah, of course, people in modern day cringe at hearing this since we know about blood-borne illnesses and that those are a thing. But this was long before the time of germ theory, so it was the wild, wild west out there. Yeah, also um, children's rights. I didn't even think about that when I was writing the notes, but... (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a whole other... Well, I mean, they were working in factories at, like, age eight, so no one really cared, which is so sad. But anyways, uh, remember our old friend William Harvey? Well, he made another important discovery about blood. 
It was previously thought that blood came straight from the food that we eat. However, he performed experiments where he measured how much food sheep were given and then bled them out to compare the volume. And he found that there was a much greater volume of blood in the sheep than food that they had been given. And so he concluded that blood must be produced and circulate within the body. Knowing that blood doesn't come from food, physicians started to wonder about the potential of blood transfusion. The first blood transfusion was performed from one dog to another in 1665 by the English physician Richard Lower. Blood transfusions were considered unsafe, uh, understandably, and were banned for 150 years. And after this time, Carl Landsteiner and his students discovered human blood types, which we will discuss in the next episode. Our modern-day knowledge about blood and vessels allows us to do amazing things in science and medicine. Many people wouldn't be alive today without some kind of blood transfusion. According to the Red Cross, nearly 21 million blood components are transfused every year. Yeah, I mean, personally, both my parents have been recipients of these in some, some sort of blood component, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. And again, reminder that people should go and donate blood if they can. Yeah, there's a shortage of Uh, platelets right now, actually. But beyond transfusions, there's even more sophisticated techniques in the works. One of the holy grails in the blood research field is to be able to generate blood from the patient's very own cells so that there'd be less reliance on blood donations and no worry about reactions to transfusions. We've talked a lot about induced pluripotent stem cells on the podcast and This is the same idea for how this would be done. In theory, this could make blood donations almost irrelevant, but the technology isn't quite there yet. Another promising option is to use our favorite gene editing technology, CRISPR-Cas9, to treat patients with blood disorders like sickle cell anemia. And finally, many researchers are very interested in blood vessels because of the current limitations in organoid research. As a reminder, organoids are small, three-dimensional clusters of cells that resemble a mature organ in a few ways. Organoids are made of those similar cells, and they perform similar functions as the mature organ. But they're called organoid because they're similar, but not exactly the same as an organ in the body. If you want to hear more details about this, check out our episode on brain organoids. One of the major roadblocks in organoid research is that these structures are not vascularized. Uh, They have no blood vessels. So inside of the 3D sphere of cells cannot receive nutrients from the liquid food that we give to the organoid because it just bathes kind of the outside of the sphere. Because of this, the cells on the inside die and the organoids don't really grow very big. For brain organoids, they max out around four millimeters. This is very tiny, Uh, much less than half an inch. Uh, So hopefully in the future... Learning more about blood vessel development will help us to get around this problem. And that concludes our introduction of the cardiovascular system. In two weeks, we'll be talking all about blood types and blood type diets. And in the meantime, let us know if you have any questions. Please feel free to email us at steministas at gmail.com or contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And our handle is Pod. Mm-hmm.